Welcome back to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. This week, on Sunday, the Sean Spicer Redemption Tour officially began. This will be the largest audience to witness an Emmys, period, both in person and around the world. Wow, that really soothes my fragile ego. I can understand why you'd want one of these guys around. (laughs) Melissa McCarthy, everybody, give it up. So that was Sean Spicer at the Emmy Awards on Sunday night. He rolled out on stage on the little mechanized podium that Melissa McCarthy used. He reclaimed the podium, and he, like, made a joke about the crowd size at the Emmys. And I threw up in my lap. (laughs) In your lap. It sucked more for me than it did for Sean. You know, we were so worried about where Sean Spicer would land, and now we know his career going forward is going to be as a B-list celebrity with guest appearances at pop culture events. It's it's literally disgusting. Like when we were talking about like how he was cute and how we missed him and blah, blah, blah. We only missed him because he was a pathetic character, not because we actually missed him or wanted him around. Right, and also because we thought that he would just go away. I mean, the fact that he's back, it's not cute. That's and it's not just cute. Gr- it's just gross of these all these celebrities. that There were like pictures. So people who liked it, they were like, no, he's, humi- he's humiliating himself. People love it. Everyone's laughing at him. Nobody's laughing with him. Because he's complicit in a like a horrible presidential administration. But he, people were not laughing at him. They were laughing with him. And after, you can see all these Getty photos of him like having a a yuck with James Corden. He's like best friends like you- with every celebrity now. They all took his picture. It was like the best night of his life. It's like you can stand by and support like a latent white supremacist who is emboldening neo-Nazis one second. And the next second, hey, if you have the ability to laugh at yourself, you're cool. You're fine. You know how there are, like, certain career paths that, like, lead you to celebrity very quickly? One of them is being a disgraced Trump administration official. It's like, true. everyone loves you so, like, look after at, you leave. Look at the mooch. He's, what is, he now up for a role on The View? <laughs> He's, like, showing, like, a tiny bit of a sense of humor, and then you forget he's a disgusting, despicable person. It's such a low bar. This week on the show, we're going to honor Edie Windsor, a hero of the LGBT rights movement, and joining us will be James Essex. He's the director of the ACLU's LGBT and HIV project, a counsel in Obergefell versus Hodges, and one of the attorneys that represented Edie at the Supreme Court. Edie was a dynamo. Edie was just an amazing whirlwind of activity. And the story that she could tell was heartrending. But first, our weekend weenies. Our first weenie of the week is Motel 6. The reason being that the Phoenix New Times last week reported that there's a Motel 6 in Arizona that has been voluntarily giving hotel guest information to ICE officials who then come and arrest undocumented immigrants. It's terrible. Yeah. They're, like, voluntarily. They they are not required to do this by law. And, in fact, like, there are protections for them to not do this. Yeah, they are encouraged not to do this by and the law. And they're just, like, if you stay at a Motel 6, or specifically this Motel 6, 
your in personal information is going to immigration officials. And there's a whole racial profiling element to this, too, because I doubt that anybody like named, you know, like George Smith is being flagged by these people. Yeah, it's pretty grotesque. I don't really understand the motivation of them being a shitty person. After the publication of the story, the Phoenix New Times received an update from Motel 6 saying that at the national level, they had no idea that this was happening and that it won't happen again. But in my opinion, Motel 6, you still suck. Motel 6, you a weenie. (laughs) Our next weenie is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Welcome back, Sarah, and also ESPN. Here's the story. ESPN's Jamel Hill tweeted... Donald Trump is a white supremacist who has largely surrounded himself with other white supremacists. That's literally not a controversial tweet. She's just just saying a fact. It's like that people think that white supremacy is bad is why that's something that they feel upset about. But like, she's just being honest, right? And then she, she tweeted a couple other times in this tweet thread on September 11th. She said, the height of white privilege is being able to ignore his white supremacy because it's of no threat to you. Well, it's a threat to me. Trump is the most ignorant, offensive president of my lifetime. His rise is a direct result of white supremacy, period. That is factual. <laughs> there's like no judgment what is, put into these what tweets. Is ro- like, <laughs> there's no opinion. <laughs> it's just fact. That is just fact. <laughs> fact the yeah. man it, i mean there are so many there's so much evidence for this the <sighs> the mexicans are rapists they're bringing drugs they're bringing crime they're rapists and some i assume are good people the central Neo-Nazi. park five he said of course i hate these people and let's all hate these people because maybe hate is what we need if we're going to get something done i mean it's incredible both sides from the neo-nazis and the kkk what about the alt-left that came charging at the as you say the alt-right do they have any semblance of guilt the birther campaign but trump comes along and said birth certificate he gave a birth certificate whether or not that was a real certificate because a lot of people question it i certainly question it he's white he's racist (laughs) he's a racist white supremacist uh yeah also he wanted i mean let's just remember i mentioned it but the central park five he wanted these innocent boys to be put in prison for a crime they didn't do and he knew they didn't do it anyway so espn weenie number one made a statement saying the comments on Twitter from Jamel Hill regarding the president do not represent the position of ESPN. We have addressed this with Jamel, and she recognizes her actions were inappropriate. So ESPN is pro-racism. Yeah, how, right. I, how I am interpreting ESPN that. Does they not, don't stand ESPN by. ESPN does not agree that Donald Trump is a white supremacist. <laughs> up, that is how I am interpreting that statement. I guess so. <laughs> okay, so then Jamel made a statement that said, so to address the elephant in the room, my comments on Twitter expressed my personal beliefs. My regret is that my comments in the public way I made them painted ESPN in an unfair light. My respect for my company and my colleagues remains unconditional. The fact that our president is a racist, but then we have to respect the president is very frustrating because now we are normalizing racism to a whole new level. Basically calling the president racist is not okay, but the president can say racist things. But once you call them out as racist, you're the one who's being offensive and impartial. Okay, so after that, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, weenie number two, 
at one of her briefings said, called Jamel Hill's comments. Number one, she commented on Jamel Hill's comments. Why? And she said, I'm not sure if he's aware, but I think that's one of the more outrageous comments that anyone could make. uh, And certainly something that I think is a fireable offense by ESPN. So she's since gotten an ethics complaint thrown at her because federal employees are not allowed to influence a private employment decision. Like, it's just fucking so fucking stupid. And then Donald Trump also tweeted about it, but I don't want to read it because it makes me want to throw up again. Mm. Everyone in this situation disgusts me. There was also some news reports that ESPN tried to replace Jamel Hill with two other Mm -hmm. black ESPN anchors. And they all said no. Yeah, good for them. Yeah. Oh, and also with Sarah Huckabee Sanders, when she made those comments about how ESPN should fire Jamel Hill, that was the same press conference in which she talked about Senator Tim Scott, who's the only black Republican senator. Uh, about his meeting with Donald Trump, and it was about race relations. I, I know that the president has met again with people like Senator Scott, who are highly respected leaders in the African-American community. He's committed to working with them to bring the country together. I think that's where we need to be focused, not on outrageous statements like that one. She failed to mention that the reason behind the meeting was that Tim Scott was frustrated and upset by Donald Trump's response to Charlottesville. So... And then they called him Tom Scott. And then they called him Tom Scott. (laughs) So, like, congrats to everyone involved. You all suck. Our third and final weenie of the week is Daniel Craig. I will not make the obvious joke about him being James Bond or rather not being James Bond. Uh, Daniel Craig is the FEMA nominee for deputy administrator who recently withdrew his application because guess what? Guess what he did, Joanna? lock a dog in the trunk of his car maybe metaphorically yes (laughs) i don't know what it is literally no (laughs) um he falsified records and his previous job and said that he was on a business trip when really he was on a job interview which like okay i guess in the realm of bad things that's not the worst thing (laughs) in the world but it's also pretty glaringly irresponsible. It, it actually feels like he's, like, the most qualified person in the Trump administration. Like, he yeah, did something I mean, the least bad. It, that's true. <laughs> like, I'd love for him to get this job and be, like, a beacon of morality. He maintains that that report is incorrect, but he has withdrawn because of the controversy. This week, we're looking back on the life of Edie Windsor, the gay rights activist whose case led the Supreme Court to legalize same-sex marriage. She died last week at the age of 88. So Windsor's life is amazing, and we can only go into a little bit of detail here, but you should read Ariel Levy's amazing New Yorker profile on her, The Perfect Wife. Ariel was there on the day the Supreme Court decision was announced. But briefly, Windsor lived with her partner, Thea Spire, for over 40 years, though they were only married for two. And Windsor 
stayed with Spire until her death of multiple sclerosis in 2009. Many people ask me why get married. I was 77, Theo was 75, okay? And maybe we were older than that at that point. Uh, But the fact is that everybody treated it as different. It turns out marriage is different, okay? And I've asked a number of of long-range couples, gay couples, who then got married, I've asked them, you know, was it different the next morning? And the answer is always yes. It's a huge difference. Uh, when, uh, okay, when our, our marriage appeared in the, in the New York Times, the, the Times, we heard from literally hundreds of people, I mean, little playmates and schoolmates and colleagues and friends and relatives, all congratulating us and, and sending love because we were married. So it's a magic word for anybody who doesn't understand why we want it and why we need it. Okay, it is magic. Because the Defense of Marriage Act outlawed same-sex marriage, Edie wasn't eligible for the exemption on estate tax that spouses get after Thea's death. And she owed over $500,000 in federal and state taxes. That's why she sued the U.S. government to get some tax money back. So she and her attorney, Robbie Kaplan, and eventually also the ACLU's James Essex, followed her case all the way to the Supreme Court. Finally, on June 26, 2013, the Windsor decision was announced in her favor, which knocked down DOMA in 13 states in D.C. It would also pave the way for Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, which would actually make same-sex marriage legal across the country. Now joining us on the line is James Essex, director of the ACLU's LGBT and HIV Project, counsel in Obergefell versus Hodges, and one of the attorneys that represented Edie at the Supreme Court. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. So first of all, can you talk about the state of the LGBT rights movement in 2009 when this case was just getting started? Because I read that marriage wasn't necessarily a priority for many of these advocates. By 2009, marriage was... uh had become a serious priority for the LGBT movement. And certainly that's not true of everyone within the movement. Marriage as a priority has, has long been a controversial thing. But by 09, this is already very much an issue of serious contention in the public dialogue in the country. And I think what happens with Edie's case um, is that Edie makes, helps us make two big advances. One big advance in court but even more important, a big advance with the public in terms of understanding of the common humanity of of gay people and of our relationships. So there have been other challenges to the legality of same-sex marriage before, like when SCOTUS told Hawaii that it would have to establish a, quote, compelling state interest to continue denying marriage licenses to gay couples. But they never really made any headway. Why is that? The, The first lawsuit Um, seeking the freedom to marry for same-sex couples was filed in 1970 in uh, Minnesota. And uh, the ACLU was actually counsel in that case. If you go back and look at the legal arguments that the parties in that case made, and you compare them to the arguments that we made before the U.S. Supreme Court in 2015 when the court ruled in favor of the freedom to marry, there's very little difference. What that means is it's not that, you know, smart lawyers came up with new and different arguments. The arguments have been the same since 1970. What happened is that the country changed. And what changed about the country is the country's understanding of who gay people are. We went from being perverts and pariahs to being friends and neighbors. And that transformation clarified the legal issues and allowed the courts to see 
the strength of the, of the legal arguments that had been there all along, but they couldn't see that in 1970, 1972, when the issue got to the Supreme Court the first time, but they could see it in 2015. Can we move we're kind of jumping around, but to 1996 when the Defense of Marriage Act was passed. Can you talk about what the response in the legal community was, what the strategy was? In 1996, President Clinton signs the Defense of Marriage Act. And that's a law that said that even if a same-sex couple is married under state law, they're not considered to be married under federal law. In our, our federal system, states marry people the federal government doesn't marry anybody, but there are about 1,100 different contexts under federal law in which it makes a difference if you're married or not. Your taxes are different, your eligibility for Social Security uh, survivor benefits are different, access to health care for federal employees depends in part on whether you're married or not, immigration. So there are lots of different contexts in which marriage makes a difference under federal law. So in 96, DOMA says, well, Gay people who are married don't get that. Well, there were no gay people who were married in 1996. No state allowed same-sex couples to marry. But in 2004, that starts to change. Massachusetts allows same-sex couples to marry. And over the course of the 2000s, a, a couple, we had a couple states here and a couple states there. And all of a sudden, DOMA becomes a real big problem because people who are married under state law are not married uh, for federal purposes. And that disability causes real harm to lots of people, including Edie Windsor. So when did you get involved in Edie's case? And did you have any misgivings when you were signing on? What was that like? The ACLU was looking around for a case uh, to use to challenge the Defense of Marriage Act. And uh, Edie and her other lawyer, Robbie Kaplan, from the Paul Weiss law firm, approached us and said, hey, would we join as counsel with them? And I met Edie and heard more about her story and realized that she was an amazing, amazing plaintiff. Somebody who could tell the story about just what's wrong with the Defense of Marriage Act, but even more important, somebody that, the, that could tell a story to the country about the love at the core of same-sex couples relationships. Tell us more about what she was like. Edie was a dynamo. Edie was just an amazing whirlwind of activity. And the story that she could tell was heartrending. She and her partner, Thea, met in the 60s, in 1967, when gay couples were not getting married anywhere in the, in the world. Uh, they got engaged. They exchanged jewelry as a, a, a token of their engagement because they knew that marriage was the language that described the relationship that they were developing, even though they couldn't get married. And so it took 40 years of living together and taking care of each other through very serious um, adversity, including uh, Thea developing multiple sclerosis, that they lived together and lived the life of a married couple until in 2009, uh, Thea died. And they got married in 2007 in Canada because they couldn't get married in New York yet. After Thea dies, they get told by the federal government, Thea, uh, Edie does, uh, that she has to pay a federal estate tax on the assets that she inherited from Thea of $363,000. And if they had been a straight couple instead of a gay couple, that tax would have been zero. And Edie looked at that and said, that's not fair. And I don't think anybody would think that that's fair, that just because they were uh, a lesbian couple, they'd have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars extra in federal taxes. So can you tell us a little bit about 
what the actual case looked like and what kind of prep you did and what it was actually like to take it to the Supreme Court? Yeah, so the the lawsuit is Edie uh, suing the federal government saying, I want a tax refund. I paid that $363,000 in estate taxes. If we were a straight couple, we would have paid, had to pay zero. And we file the papers in federal court here in New York City. And it takes a couple of years before we get a decision from the trial court. But get a good ruling from the trial court, and then it goes very quickly. Um, it goes up to the federal appeals court that rules our way, and then in very short order, the U.S. Supreme Court takes review. Through all of that, Edie was out there talking to everybody she could find about the case and her and Thea's story and the injustice at the heart of the case. And the win that we ultimately get from the U.S. Supreme Court that strikes down the Defense of Marriage Act is transformational for the LGBT rights movement and the ultimate movement for the freedom to marry. But Edie's contribution isn't just a contribution in terms of her legal case. Hers was a story that everybody heard about, that everybody could relate to, that everybody could look at that and say, wow, I, I hope my relationship is like that. I'd like my relationship to become like that. It was such a relatable relationship and such a relatable story from that perspective that she captured the imagination of the country. Tell us about uh, June 26th, the day that the decision was announced. Whatever you remember, just walk us through that day. Uh, I was in my office. Edie was with um, Robbie at her apartment. And everyone was just online uh, waiting for um, the ruling. And uh, it comes out, and it's a win, and it's pandemonium. Just people are, we're, on, we're connected by uh, speakerphone with, with Edie. She was exulting. Everybody was hoop, uh, hooting and hollering. It was the culmination of years of work. And it was a validation by the Supreme Court of the United States of the equality and liberty principles that we had been fighting for for such a long time. And it was an affirmation of the dignity of Edie and Thea and same-sex couples all across the country. So what in your mind has been the legacy of Windsor versus United States and also Obergefell, which you also worked on? So Edie's case takes down a portion of the Federal Defense of Marriage Act and that doesn't give us the freedom to marry um, for same-sex couples everywhere. It simply says that if you're a same-sex couple and you are married, you get respected under federal programs. In, in a sense, it's a narrow ruling. And we needed Obergefell to come afterwards and to get us the freedom to marry for same-sex couples in every state in the country. But Edie's de the decision in Edie's case lay the foundation for the Obergefell ruling that gave us the freedom to marry nationwide. Um, there's no question that that was a stepping stone. There's no question that once Edie's decision comes out, federal trial courts all across the country start ruling for same-sex couples who have sued in this state, that state, and another state. And so Edie's case uh, set in motion the next two years of amazing change that culminated in Obergefell. And I think what the two cases together give us is a recognition by the U.S. Supreme Court as the Justice Kennedy talks about, the equal dignity of same-sex couples and their relationships. That the Constitution protects all of us and allows all of us the autonomy to decide who it is we're going to form uh, relationships with, and it protects all of these relationships equally. That's a very special thing. That's not something that happens in the law very often. 
though these were landmark decisions and the Supreme Court has spoken on same-sex marriage, since then, there has been a concerted effort to undermine that at the state level, uh, mostly, I think, through religious freedom laws. How is that affecting LGBT rights? And is there any fear that we might go backwards? You're right that there's a big counter move by opponents of LGBT equality in the wake of the marriage decisions. And I think that this religious liberty focus by opponents of LGBT rights is really the other side's plan B. And what I mean by that is that they've spent a lot of time on their plan A, which was trying to stop us from getting equality, trying to stop us from getting the freedom to marry, stop us from getting uh, civil rights laws that protect LGBT people, and uh, on down the list. As the LGBT movement has done better and won things like Edie's case and uh, Obergefell and freedom to marry, uh, the other side has said, well, we're, we want to carve out a realm where LGBT equality doesn't affect us, and they're using religious liberty arguments to do that. And the problem is that these religious liberty arguments run the risk of blowing a hole in civil rights protections for LGBT people and actually for everybody else across the board. And there is currently a case before the U.S. Supreme Court called um, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And it's about a bakery in uh, just outside of Denver that refused to uh, sell a wedding cake to a same-sex couple. And the question is, can they do that or not? And I think this is an example of how this exemptions issue, religious exemptions issue, threatens to seriously undermine civil rights laws for everybody. Because that case is not about a cake. It's not about the product that's being sold. It's a question of whether a business can turn people away because of who they are. And if they can do that to a gay couple, they can turn anybody else away as well, whether it's based on their religion or simply based on their political beliefs, because those are the arguments that they're making. And so at issue in that case is the viability of civil rights laws for every single person in America. So is that the next major battle? What should we be looking towards? Yeah, I think in the LGBT space, there are two major battles going on at the moment. One is this question about religious exemption laws and whether people can get out of civil rights laws uh, based on the re religious beliefs or political beliefs. And the other is an attack on transgender people. I think opponents of LGBT equality are exploiting transphobia. They recognize that the country is just getting to know who transgender people are. And uh, they are trying to use that lack of knowledge and misunderstanding and, and quite frankly, fear to harm transgender people and to derail uh, further progress for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people across the board. Um, and we see that in the anti-transgender laws that have been proposed in many states and that was passed in North Carolina. There was a big effort to pass a similar law in Texas this year. And these efforts are going to continue. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Today is like a spectacular event for me. Uh, I mean, it's a lifetime kind of event. And, uh, and I know that the spirit of my late spouse, the Aspire, okay, is right here watching and listening and, uh, and would be very proud and happy of where we've come to. Thank you all. <laughs>
Now it's time for How to Handle the Dicks, the segment where we discuss how we're handling the dicks. Prachi, are, are you handling the dicks? I can't really say that I am. You're having a stressful weekend. <laughs> having a stressful weekend. I'm apartment hunting in New York City, which is a great way to not handle your shit. It's a great way to introduce to yourself a, a whole new group of dicks. Yeah, and anxiety, and anxiety, which is the biggest dick. Anxiety, the biggest dick of all. Totally. It's true. I feel like one of us is always looking for an apartment. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> like at any <laughs> at any given moment, either Praji or Joanne is looking for an apartment. <laughs> it's true. Um, uh, it's just a saga. I've, on, I've only been looking for two weeks, so I, and I'm going to move next month, so I still have some time. It's been a roller coaster. It's like... I found an apartment, then I saw other apartments, and then I was like, wait, I want to live in that neighborhood, not this neighborhood, and then I found an apartment there, and then, like, I put in a bid, and then it was gone within an hour before I bid for it, and now I'm back to square one, and, like, like I went into this with an idea of what I wanted, but, of course, it's like window shopping, and then when you actually go shopping for something you need, you can't ever find the thing so that you— true. The one thing that you do need, like, it's a very specific thing— and now I'm all sorts of confused and I forget what it is that I even wanted in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> I really get it. I really and, and I hate it. <laughs> I'm really bad at I want to help you, but I'm also so bad at this because when I've been apartment hunting, like the first one I see, I'm like, I love it. I can't picture myself anywhere else. Exactly. And then it's that's like me. not that's not rational. And, and and it's not rational, especially if you like if you had a list going in and then, and then it's it, like, it doesn't oh, meet. Any yeah. of those requirements, but you're, but it's so nice you're that like, you're like, oh, it's 30 minutes from a subway, whatever, I can walk, <laughs> and it has no windows, but, like, it's adorable. Yeah. <laughs> I totally get it. Um, I'm not looking for an apartment right now, blessedly, but this week for me, it's, like, ve- it's very Judaism heavy. This weekend, I went to a bat mitzvah where there were a total of three bat mitzvah-related events. And then on Friday, it's Rosh Hashanah. That's right. So there's more Judaism. And these events I find to be like fun. They're not not fun, but they're all eating centric. And so I'm like, I've eaten kind of a combined total of six bagels. And then on Friday, it's not a bagel holiday, but I'm going to eat more. (laughs) And I just am feeling a little stressed about that too. (laughs) And then you're going to eat more because you're stressed about. And I'm going to eat more because I'm going to stress eat about all of my Jewish food. Jewish cuisine. And also on like Jewish holidays, I really am like, carbs don't exist. And I really go crazy. (laughs) So basically I'm carb loading and I'm okay with it. Okay. Here's something we haven't done in many weeks. I hope you guys are still listening right to the end of the podcast. You guys need to send us emails or voice notes or tweets about how you're handling the dicks and about what dicks you'd like to see covered on this show. There's only so much handling Joanna and I can do on our own. So I literally, yes, we need help. (laughs) Please tell us. We'll announce them right at the beginning of the show. And we've gotten some really nice comments and I love them all. And it's just like, I really want to feel like there's more of a community bond um, among big time dickheads. (laughs) So to do that, you can email us at bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or you can tweet at us at prachigoo or at Joanna Rothkopf with the hashtag Big Time Dicks, or 
You could skywrite something to us <laughs> sky and hope that we see it. Over, I would be very into that. Over general lower Manhattan area. <laughs> I'd be so impressed. That would be really cool and we'd definitely mention it. We'd definitely be like, nice. Um, what else? Anything, any other ways to get in touch with us? I can't think of one. A billboard. A billboard. Definitely. Put, put it up on a billboard. Or taking out an ad in a magazine that we read. Yeah. <laughs> I don't read any. <laughs> I read everything on the I know. internet. Take out an internet <laughs> That's ad. So sad. Take out a targeted Facebook ad. <laughs> Write a Craigslist post. <laughs> All of these are good options. How about? Guys, there are so many, how about so many ways to talk to us. How about You're, sell an item on eBay, have that item go viral, have us order the item, and then have in like the receipt a note. Start a Kickstarter to fund how you, I don't even know. Just start one. Start one. <laughs> make it funny. We'll get a tip about it. We'll look at it, and then it'll be. And then you, we'll want to be your best friend. No, but That's then how it also, this works. But also inside of it, it would have the dick. It would have. It the needs dick. to have the information it in it. Yeah. It can't oh, just yeah. be like a way this, to. This is this is actually my ploy to try to make friends. Right <laughs> yeah, now, you forgot what, about I'm the just, Yeah, I just want. I want some friends. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and thank you to our guest, James Essex. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Lana Namofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Corey Schreppel. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. And you can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Got a Big Time Dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag BigTimeDicks. We'll see you next Tuesday. And who knows what the world will look like then. Bye.